Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Val McDermid, interviewed by best-selling author Mark Billingham, live at the 2023 The Eastern All Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion with a crime writing icon. Good morning uh, and welcome to this very special, special guest event. Uh, There could be no more appropriate way to kick off this year's festival because quite simply without the woman I'll be talking to this morning, none of us would be here at all. This would basically just be a car park. Oh, it is basically a car park. 20 years ago, she was one of the driving forces and founding figures of this festival and has been closely involved with it ever since. We'll be talking about her commitment to this festival over two decades, but of course we have plenty of other things to discuss. There's the small matter of the 38 novels, not to mention non-fiction, children's books and radio plays, the 20 million books she sold, the television adaptations, the mantelpiece on which there simply isn't room for any more awards, and the five, five, count them, different series featuring Kate Brannigan, Lindsay Gordon, Tony Hill and Carol Jordan, Karen Pirry, and most recently, Ali Mearns, that have earned her gazillions of fans all over the world. She is, quite simply, a rock star in every sense, so would you please welcome the Queen of Crime, Val McDermott! So let's go back, let's go back 20 years, Val, to those early discussions about a new crime festival in, God forbid, the North. Yeah. Um, how tricky was it to persuade people that this was going to work? It was quite tricky because London publishers, some of them had never been that far north. <laughs> so why, 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 why is it going to be in the North? <laughs> um, and I mean, the first, the first festival uh, essentially was, was, um, there was me and Jane Gregory and Maria Raitt uh, from the professional side of, of, of the, the writing world uh, going around all our friends, twisting their arms up their back, saying, come to Harrogate, it'll be fun. We'll have a nice time. And, you know, God bless them, people came, writers came, um, and they had a great time. And readers came, which is even more important, and they seemed to have a great time as well. Uh, and second year, the publishers were sort of saying, oh, perhaps, perhaps we should support this a little bit. Um, perhaps we should pay their train fares. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then a, a few of them came, but by the third one, we were beating them off with a stick. I yeah. mean, now they, 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 they queue up, they beg, ask, <laughs> they sell their children. You know? <laughs> and, I mean, back then, you could, couldn't possibly have imagined that it would be you know, the biggest, no. best crime festival in the world. I mean, no, no, I mean, really... We're, we, we didn't, we didn't, there, wasn't, there, wasn't, there wasn't another crime festival really in the country. And we, we thought we were going out on a limb. We didn't know if there was an audience big enough to sustain it, but uh, we hoped there was, because we all knew there was lots of readers out there. Um, and we thought we could, we could probably do this. And yeah, I, I, I didn't think it was going to become this, that I'd find myself on a, a, a cold July morning looking at a sea of faces. <laughs> It's just great. So, I mean, but you've obviously been closely associated with the festival ever since it began, notably with the, the New Blood panel, which you'll be chairing for the final time uh, this year. New Blood, in case anybody doesn't know, New Blood alumni include the likes of Stuart McBride, Attica Locke, Belinda Bauer, Stuart Neville, Abia Mukherjee, Will Dean, Fiona Cummins, um, which certainly confirms that you've got pretty fantastic taste. Uh, but it's been a hell of a lot of work every year, all these books read every year, so it must be something you're hugely passionate about. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that we, we talked about that, that very first meeting that we were having about what kind of festival we wanted to have, we wanted something that was international. And every year we've brought authors over from overseas, from America, but also from other places in Europe and beyond. Uh, and the other thing that uh, I was particularly passionate about was uh, that we should support new writers coming through. We assumed that the audience would come because they were, they were great readers of the genre, so they would have read... I mean, after that first, first year with Colin Dexter as our guest of honour, mm. uh, we assumed it would, they'd have read all Colin's books. But the support wasn't really there for new writers so much. Um, past your mind back 20 years. I mean, now publishers make a huge fuss over a lot of debut novels and, and they're a big deal. They get a lot of marketing spend. But back then, 
a lot of debuts, most debuts were just published to, you know, like a trickle of, of publicity, uh, not much in the way of reviews, and a lot of things got missed, I think. People just didn't find the books that they, they needed to feed their habit. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I kind of <laughs> saw myself as the drug dealer of... of uh, well... <laughs> I mean, a new award. Another a new award was announced last night. An award in your name uh, for debut authors, which is another testament uh, to the fact that you're hugely supportive of new authors. Which isn't, let's be honest, isn't always the case uh, with writers as well established as yourself. Um, I, I was wondering, did, did you receive similar support from established writers when you started out? Yeah, I mean, when I started, um, the Northern chapter of the Crime Writers Association was very collegial. Um, we used to have lunches uh, every every few weeks, uh, it seemed to me, and there was I mean stellar faces uh, coming to those those things, and I was when I started I started round about the same time as Anne Cleves and Martin Edwards, and we'd go along to these these lunches and really well established people like Reginald Hill. I mean Reg was incredibly supportive towards me when I was starting out, and also some of my American sisters, you know Sarah Paretsky, Sue Grafton. They were like really, uh, really supportive in the, in the early days. Um, I mean, I, 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 I once had a very, very fortunate evening when Sarah Paretsky got stuck in a traffic jam. Uh, she was coming up from London, with, and, the, and the Penguin driver phoned Waterstones uh, in Deansgate, uh, where she was appearing that evening, to say we're stuck in traffic south of Birmingham. This was like a quarter of an hour before she was due on stage. And Robert Topping, of, of the now legendary Topping's Bookshops, uh, was manager of the store at the time, and he was panicking. He had 200 people in the room. Um, and I'd, I think I'd published one Kate Brannigan novel at that point. And he sort of, I was there in the audience, and he, and he summoned me and said, can you do 45 minutes for me? <laughs> <laughs> so I got Sarah Ponetsky's audience, <laughs> which I sold probably a lot more books that night than she did, because everybody had read her books. But this is, I think this, this all... Uh, supports this notion, which is true, it's more than a notion, that the crime fiction, fiction community is welcoming and clubbable. Um, why do you think that isn't the case in other areas of the, shall we say, the wider literary community? I, I think part of it was that for a very long time, I mean, that, that, the landscape has changed, I think, in recent years, but for a very long time, crime writing was not regarded as respectable. We were below the salt. We were just sort of, you know, things you buy at airports or you buy to read on the beach. And there was generally perceived by certain literary quarters that there was no literary merit in what we were doing at all. Um, and so I suppose we huddled together for warmth. You know? <laughs> and also there's that, that thing of... Um, because we're writing about big, difficult emotions all the time, we're writing about, about love and loss and grief and jealousy and rage... And to write those authentically, to give your characters those, those, those responses that feel to the reader like the real thing, you have to explore your own experience of those things. So we're, we're constantly living the life examined. You know, we go back into our own memory of, of, of being dumped or, or losing someone we loved, and we, we bring that to our work. So in a sense, we've got rid of all the, the bad stuff that other people have to go to therapy for. <laughs> It's not writing as therapy, it's nothing as blunt as that, but it's, it's about processing our own experience of the world in order to translate it onto the page. I, um, I want to go back a little bit further, uh, because you... Uh, this is a fact that I still find gobsmacking, Val. You, so you studied at Oxford, at St Hilda's College, Oxford, but you were, in fact, the first student from a Scottish state school to do that, ever. Um, were, were you aware of your kind of place in the history of further education at that well, time? <laughs> no, 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 I kind of was, in a, in a sense, when I, when I went for my interview. I mean, I was ridiculously young. I was only 16 when I went for my interview because I'd skipped a year going up to high school. Um, and uh, the, the principal interviewed me and she said, we've never taken anyone from a Scottish state school before. <laughs> and because I was 16 and from Fife and Gallus and Thrawn, I said, well, it's about time you started. <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did you find it? What did, what did they make of you? What did you make of them? Well, I thought, I mean, I thought these people have got the keys to the kingdom and I'm not leaving till I've snatched them from their dead hand. You know? <laughs> I, was, I, mean, I, I, I knew, I, knew that I understood that this was a, a huge chance for me to yeah. open lots of doors, not just immediately, but in the future. I mean, I still ring up people from, from my... Well, I still email people, because I'm very up with modern technology, up with the kids, you know, <laughs> that, that I was at Oxford with. I mean, you know, when I was researching 1989, a, a 
somebody had somebody was at the Elizabeth was had a career in the diplomatic and was actually in Eastern Europe at the time the wall came down. So I just emailed her and said, "Can I come and have lunch with you?" Yeah. And that was that. So I got a huge chunk of really good information just on the basis of we were the same place 40 years ago. So you arrived there with kind of sharp elbows. You weren't yeah, kind of I shrinking violet. Not no, that you were ever a shrinking violet, but, you know. I didn't, I didn't have a chip on my shoulder. Okay. I didn't feel that, that I didn't deserve to be there. Um, I, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a household where I was, I was taught that I was as good as anybody else. My dad was a great lover of Robert Burns. And he espoused his views about equality and uh, the, the, there's a great line in The Man's a Man for All That. The rank is but the guinea stamp. The man's the goud for all that. So it's, it's that I grew up with that sense of I was as good as anybody else and I was there because I was good enough. So I, didn't, I, didn't, I, I knew other people who were in my year who came from a, a similar working class background who really were, 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 were always sort of chippy and always looking for offence to take. I didn't feel like that. I just saw things as opportunities. Um, the, well, my first problem really was that, that, that I could, they couldn't understand me, Ken. <laughs> I said, I come from Fife and I talk good brave Fife. We talk awfully fast and there's a lot of words with the folk didn't Ken. Ken? 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 So, see? Excuse me? I come from Fife for this... I come from Fife for this bugs fly back was to keep the stew out the rain. And so I had some difficulty in communication. <laughs> Uh, my very first essay, I started reading out my essay, my tutorial. I mean, some of you may have heard the story before, but and my, and my tutor said, I'm most terribly sorry, Miss McDermott, but I haven't understood a word you've said. <laughs> M might you go back to the beginning and perhaps a, a little more slowly this time? <laughs> so I did. Um, and the, I, I guess I just... I, I understand now that I didn't understand at the time that because I was so young and because I was not from their traditional pool of entrance, that I was kind of taken care of. People looked after me in a way that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise, but very unobtrusively. I never felt, like, you know, patronised or... Yeah, they weren't or, showing you off. They weren't going, she's from a state school, you know, everybody. Look, <laughs> She's Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> she speaks very good English. <laughs> We've trained her well. She's got shoes and everything. <laughs> and she knows what to do with cutlery. I am. Mostly. Before we talk about the books, obviously there's so many books to talk about. Before we talk about the books, I just want to talk about one other non-book-related incident because I think it says everything anyone needs to know about you as a person. The other thing that was fostered at home growing up was a lifelong passion for Wraith Rovers football team. But in February last year, that, that commitment was sorely tested. Now, for anyone who doesn't know the story, talk, can you talk about what happened when, when the club signed a player called David Goodwillie? Well, uh... I, had, I have been involved with the club quite a lot in the last, last 20 years or so, um, supporting them financially. With, uh, I sponsored the stand and I sponsored the, the, the team shirts. Uh, my dad was a scout for the team. My dad, some of the older members of the audience may remember a player called Jim Baxter, um, who's probably the greatest footballer Scotland ever produced, and my dad discovered him. So he said to me years later, he said, oh, a blind man could have scouted Jim Baxter. <laughs> But uh, he was the man who did it. And so in, in, in Kirkcaldy, there are still places I go in Kirkcaldy where I am known as Jim McDermott's lassie. Doesn't matter how many books I sell or anything else. The real issue is, anyway, um, and I had been on the board for a while, come off it because board meetings did my head in. Uh, I'm no good at meetings. Uh, and they, they, they decided they were, they were close to the position of, of, of making it to the playoffs with promotion in sight. And they decided that what they needed was a striker. And uh, they sounded out various people in the club about a player called David Goodwillie, who uh, had been, I can't say found guilty because it wasn't a criminal case, but he had been called unequivocally a rapist by a high court judge in Scotland in a civil case brought by his victim. Uh, she had been awarded damages of a substantial amount of money uh, and Goodwillie had then declared himself bankrupt in order to avoid paying her a shilling, as it was in those days. <laughs> um, and uh, the club wanted to sign him because they thought he was a, a striker who could get them promotion. And I said, this is a crazy idea. We're building this whole reputation as a family club. Do you really want a rapist on the pitch? Is that the image you want to have of the club? Uh, other directors, the, the, play, the, the 
farmers' representative said, really shouldn't be doing this, we shouldn't be even thinking about this. And I was assured by the club's chief executive that, that there was so much protest from all sides that they were not going to do this. So I thought no more of it. And in the January transfer window, uh, minutes away from the end of the transfer window, they signed David Goodwillie. Uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't imagine David Goodwillie running out on a pitch with my name across his chest. You know, so I, I phoned the commercial manager first thing the next morning and I said, uh, um, I'm cancelling my sponsorship as of right now uh, and I want nothing to do with this. And he said, I thought you'd say that. All, all those years of, of passionate support and a lot of money under the, under the bridge and that was the response I got. Uh, and there was a huge uh, protest from the fans uh, the women's team just walked away. Uh, the response from the fans was such that they never actually played him. As the, the fans were just saying, we don't want to see him on the pitch, we don't want him here. Uh, they'd signed him on a two and a half year contract, which caused them some financial issues to get rid of. They tried to persuade his previous club to take him back. And the local council, who owned the ground of, where his previous club played, said, your contract's cancelled with us. You don't get to play here after next season. Find somewhere else to play if you want that guy anywhere near you. So it all got quite heated and uh, I had a fabulous time on Twitter, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Astonishing number of, of uh, mostly men who uh, criticised me for destroying a young man's chance to have a career and a life. Um, nothing about the young woman that he'd, he'd raped. I mean, this was, this was not... This was a really horrible incident. He and another player got this woman so drunk she couldn't stand. The taxi driver that drove them to the flat said she couldn't stand, she couldn't speak. Um, and she was, she was raped more than once, left naked in this flat with the front door locked. Um, and that was, what was, that was what they did. They never apologised, they never showed any remorse, they never, they never owned it. Now, I'm... I'm Anyone who's read my books will know that I understand the value of, of rehabilitation and, and, and the possibility of reclaiming your life. But that starts with owning what you've done and apologising for what you've done and trying to make restitution for what you've done. None of this he has done. He's now painting himself as a victim. He actually did, he did a, a podcast interview this week, which I haven't listened to, but uh, I, I saw a brief clip of it where he's saying that uh, her and me talking about his victim... We're both victims. I've been victimised by the press. I've had, I've had my life taken away from me. Jesus. But what, so, this, what this did, you know, tough, tough as all that was uh, for you, what it did lead was, so now, now your support and sponsorship have now been transferred to McDermott Ladies, Race yes. Rovers McDermott yes. Ladies. Yes. Uh, how are... Uh, I told... I, I, <clears throat> I said to them, I don't want you to call themselves McDermott ladies. I really don't. I, I didn't. I genuinely didn't want them to do that. Um, and, and I only found out af well after the event when the captain was giving a, a, a television interview why they'd done that. Um, and she said, well, you see, the 23 of us, we're absolutely rock solid. We've got each other. We're a community. But Val's got Nabedy at her back. So... <laughs> We, we thought we'd show our support by calling the club McDermott Ladies. They hadn't met Joe at that point. Right. How, <laughs> how are they doing? How McDermott Ladies, how did they do last season? Not brilliantly. We lost our, we lost our striker and our best defender yeah. uh, to another club. But uh, we, the soldier on. Enjoy okay. it. I mean, they enjoy it. That's the great thing. The, the great thing is their passion yeah. and their, their, their solidarity as a, as, a, as a group of young women uh, who, who go out in the park and, and you know they, they, they bring a stadium with changing rooms and everything to play in that local community college pitch in the open air it's, it's called the Windmill Community Campus and it's called Windmill because that's where the windmill was and the windmill was there because <laughs> yeah see when you're standing there in the, in, in the dead of winter and the snow's going horizontal across the pitch <laughs> should, that shows your commitment the um your new series, the new series features the journalist Ali Burns, which we'll talk about in a bit more 
detail in a bit. Um, but there's one moment in, in the latest book, 1989, which I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you were a journalist, obviously, and I, I, I know Ali Burns is not you. But that said, there's a moment when someone's talking to Ali and they suggest to her, oh, have you, have you ever thought about writing? Have you ever thought about writing crime fiction? Uh, and Ali Burns goes, God, no, you know, that's, that's not in me. That's not in my DNA. Clearly, it was in your DNA. So what, what was that moment like for you? What was that moment when you, when you, when you moved? Did the, did the two things cross over? Had you become disenchanted with journalism? Well, I was disenchanted with, with what happened to journalism in the 1980s, um, with Murdoch and, and Maxwell having their race to the bottom. But for me, being a journalist was only ever what I did until I could make a living writing fiction. I wanted to, to, to be a writer of fiction from about the age of nine. when I, I, was read, I used to read voraciously in the local library, everything, oh, read my way around the shelves. Um, probably my favourite series was the Shally School books. And one of the characters in that... <laughs> yes, yes, see, Aww. nods of recognition around the room, yeah. And one of the characters in that grows up to become a writer. Uh, and in one book, and I can remember now, it was on a right-hand page, about halfway down, paragraph in the middle of the page, she got a letter from her publisher. And in the envelope was a cheque. And it was the first time I'd actually consciously thought that people that wrote the books got paid money for it. I mean, I don't know, I don't know if they thought that they did it out of the goodness of their heart or whatever, but I thought, I could do that, I want to do that, I can tell stories, I can tell lies. <laughs> so I can make stuff up. And, I thought, and that was the point where the, the ambition was forged, and I never really entertained another ambition except possibly to be Joni Mitchell, but I didn't have the hair. Well. Um, so, so, yeah, I, 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 but I also understood that, that, you know, people like me don't become writers. You know, nobody in my family had, had the slightest a, a ambition in that direction. I mean, we, we were the first generation for anyone to go to university, and, and my cousins all went and did sort of hard science, you know, like, uh, uh, at university. And, and they still laugh at me and say, you, 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 we have to do research. You just get to make stuff up. Um, so it, it, it was not something that uh, was ever greeted with anything other than a splutter of laughter when I said, I'm going to be a writer. Everybody would laugh. Well, again, just, just before we get into the new series, I'm, I'm just going to ask you a question on behalf of, an, I know, a lot of people in this audience. So before we start talking about the new series, have we seen the last of Carol and Tony? I never say never. Um, and I would just point out that the next in the Ali Burns series is 1999. And it's my universe. It's my fictional universe. Mm. So my people are out there. You know, there's, there's, there's okay. always potential okay. for crossover. So this series of, of five books that began with, with 1979, yep. uh, which will culminate in 2019, so the last year before everything went bonkers. And this is something we can actually thank COVID for, isn't it? This yeah. series. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's one of the few things of, of a positive nature that came from COVID. Um, I finished the previous Karen Perry novel, Still Life, uh, just as we were going into the first lockdown in, in March 2020. Um, and like all of us, I was anxious, I was frightened, uh, I had no idea what was coming next. I had some quite good ideas about what might be coming next because in 2017 I'd written a series of radio plays about a global pandemic that had... Uh, basically almost wiped out the human race. So I was quite anxious about lots of things. Um, and I, I, but I couldn't think how to write a book set against the here and now. And all my books, broadly speaking, are set against the here and now. Identifiable landmark events in, in, in all of them, one way or another. And everything was changing day to day, um, you know. <laughs> you'd go to bed at night thinking one thing, you'd wake up the next day, you'd turn on the telly and there would be Nicola Sturgeon standing at a podium telling you something different. Um, so, it, 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 to me, I couldn't, I couldn't find solid ground to stand on, to write from. And so I thought, what I need to do is, is go back to where I do know what's, what was happening. And that, for me, went going back into, into the, the, the distant past. And I, I thought it would be quite interesting to write a sequence of novels um, that kind of covered uh, my writing life, if you like, from journalism through to uh, writing fiction. But Ali, I will has, I say, is not going to write fiction. But I want the things I had learned from my writing life, if you like, I could use in these these novels. And it was also a way of avoiding writing the memoir that my publishers keep <laughs> nipping at my heels about. I don't want to write a memoir. I don't want to spend two years staring at my own navel. You know, a lot of people would also have to die first, <laughs> or, or I'll spend the rest of my life in the libel courts. You know, but uh, 
I'd, I'd, I thought that uh, if, if I wrote these, these books, I could use the, the material, use the experiences. And so, use, I mean, the books, have, are, are, I've got my own anecdotage, but also stealing my friend's anecdotage as well. It's, uh, so that's what I did. I thought five novels, ten years between them all, same protagonist. See her through from her mid-twenties to her mid-sixties. Well, this, this, so this one, 89, 1989, it I mean, it begins with the Lockerbie Memorial. Yeah. Uh, it ends with Hillsborough, and the whole thing is set against sort of the growing AIDS crisis. I mean, in terms of sort of dark material, did did you just get really lucky with your choice of years, or <laughs> I, I kind or, of or did. is every year well, a horrible year? I don't, I don't, I don't know that every year has such quite momentous events in it. Yeah. But um, I, I certainly, when I started, I, I thought I'd finish it in 2019. That was my sort of starting point, if you like. Um, because I wanted it to be the last year of normal life. And in 10-year chunks, that took me to 1979, and as soon as I started looking at that, I thought, oh, yeah, winter of discontent, Scottish de devolution referendum, all sorts of stuff going on. Um, and I thought it was really uh, an interesting time to be writing against. And then 89, great year. I mean, it ends with the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know. I mean, there's, there's plenty going on. <laughs> well, I, well, I know the next book, the next book that's coming out is not going to be 1999. No, that is going to be the next book in yeah, the series. Yeah. Can you give us a sneak preview of 1999? I can't remember anything other than lots of people saying the world was going to end. Yeah, there was lots, lots of stuff going on in 1999. Um, Scottish Parliament started. Um, there, was, there was the Y2K bug that everybody was scared about. There was lots of things going on. I mean, it's, uh, we, we had to party like it was 1999 as well, you know. And that was quite a strain. <laughs> it, was, it was a big demand. Well... So the next the next book that is coming out is not 1999. It's no. a new Karen Peary yeah. novel, yeah. Uh, Past Lying. So so what's Karen up to? Well, it was, it was unintentional. I wasn't intending to write a Karen Peary novel then, but uh, I was in New Zealand last year for four months, and uh, I had this idea for a Karen Peary novel, and I thought I'll just put that to one side and come back to it. But it wouldn't go away. I mean, you know that feeling. Hmm. You get a, you get something that's just banging at the doors of your head, and it, it won't leave you in peace. And the only way to get peace from it is to write it. So, so I did. Um, I wrote it while I was in, I was in New Zealand. Um, and uh, it's... it's uh, the, the, the previous novel, Still Life, ended just as we were aware that something bad was coming. And uh, the new one, Past Lying, takes place in lockdown, which makes investigation slightly more trying. But it's a very different world that Karen's operating in. So uh, Karen's it, also in this... It, this Brilliant TV adaptation, in case anybody hasn't seen it, but which is coming back, right? Yeah, next year, yeah. Next year. Um, now, I know you've always said that in terms of a wire in the blood, Robson Green was exactly how you'd seen Tony Hill, and yeah. that Robson Green was perfect. And I know that Lauren Lyle wasn't. I mean, she's brilliant in the yeah. show, but she wasn't necessarily uh, the character in your head. How closely involved in, in this set of adaptations have you been? I've been involved in conversations. I've seen scripts. Um, and when, when Lauren was mooted as, as Karen Puri... Um, I, I, you know, I, I thought, she doesn't, doesn't look anything like the Karen in my head, but I was familiar with some of her work, uh, and I saw her test reel, and I thought, oh, she can do this. Um, she's, and and she's, she's a tremendous actor, and her dad comes from Kirkcaldy, so she's got the accent right, you know? <laughs> but no, she's... she's um, I think when, you're, when you're, you look at adaptation, I mean, you know this, what you're looking for is a really talented actor who will bring your character to life and make people fall in love with them. So anybody who's not read the books will rush out and, and read the books. So they go, no, she doesn't look anything like. But it doesn't, but it doesn't, it doesn't change, change the way you write the character. No, no, not at all, not at all. No, Karen's not suddenly going to become slim and blonde. Yeah, but um, because, because we both know that does occasionally happen. Yes. You know, I think, I think you mentioned Colin Dexter, yeah. who we both love, but like Inspector Morse being the classic example of that, yes. started yeah. to be a bit more like John Thor as the books went on. Yeah. And why not, for Absolutely. God's sake? Why not, indeed? Um, because eagle-eyed readers will spot it and send you emails to complain. That's why not. Yeah. <laughs> Colin, Colin was writing the era before that facility was available to people. Um, but no, I, th I think, uh, I say what, what, what you want is something that feels authentic, that feels like it's existing in the same universe as the, as the novel. There will be changes inevitably because television tells stories differently. 
Are you, but, are you good the, at that the, the, stuff, the, the, Val? Sorry, are you good at that stuff? Responding to, to readers and stuff. Just, just thinking is what we were talking about as we were walking up the hill about, you know, you'd, you'd had several conversations since you've been here this weekend of people going, oh, I don't think the character should do that and the character should oh, do that. Oh, last night you, I'd, I'd, I was getting it from all sides last <laughs> night. Oh, it was, it was a bunch of us sitting around the table and they were all going, no, I think, I think this, I think that. You should do this with the character, you should do that with the character. One, one member of our group was even suggesting we have a poll of the audience. <laughs> to see whether they think Rona and Ali are right for each other. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, these are my characters, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I know you love them, and I know you feel ownership of them, but if you want to go down that road, just, just do fan fiction. Don't, don't bother me with it. Uh, fan, got, fiction, fan fiction of which there is plenty, by oh, the way. There is, indeed. Do you, do you indulge? Do you have a little read? I did once look at the Tony Hill and Carol Jordan fan fiction, and I have to say, I came away feeling a bit dirty. <laughs> and not in a good way? Not in a good way, no. No, 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 no. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's lovely. I mean, I, I, it's, it's lovely, it's, lovely. It's, it's a real tribute, in a way. That, that, that people feel so engaged with the books, and so engaged with the characters. Um, I mean, I, I had a ridiculous conversation a while back. Somebody said, uh, when I said, that, unfortunately, the dog's going to have to die. I said, what? You can't kill the dog. I said, I can't have a 41-year-old dog. <laughs> said, it's ridiculous. At some point, this dog is going to have to die. Probably off stage. But the dog then did move into it, wasn't... That was a different dog. Oh, that was a different dog. Uh, You've killed yeah. so many dogs. I didn't kill that dog. I did not kill that dog. That dog moved. Uh, when, when, I, when I'd written the third Lindsay Gordon novel, I sent her to live in America, because I thought, I don't know America well enough to set a book there, so that'll take away the temptation to write another one. And, of course, as soon as I'd done that, I had a brilliant idea for a, another Lindsay Gordon. And I wrote another three, and then it was starting to become cumbersome that she was kept to come back to the UK to, 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 to get a, to solve a crime, you know. Um, and so I, I, I sent, I think it was the fifth one I sent off to my agent, and at the end it was, she was having a conversation with her partner on the play that said, I think we should, it's maybe time to move back to Glasgow. And I thought that was a perfectly reasonable thing to say. I got a phone call from my agent days later. How can you do this? They have a dog. <laughs> Are you going to abandon the dog? Or are you going to put a dog in quarantine for six months? It's atrocious, it's cruelty. I can't believe you would do a thing like that. And I'm getting this total meltdown from my agent in my ear. And I think it's just it's a fictional dog, you know. That's not a real dog. So uh, a short time afterwards, I was having lunch with my friend Laurie King, an American crime writer who's got a very successful series involving uh, Mary Russell, who marries Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but she also writes a, a series, uh, a contemporary series set in San Francisco with a, a, a cop, Kate Martinelli. And she said, oh, it's, it's simple. The solution is simple. You just give Lindsay's dog to Kate Martinelli's friend. She just, so the dog actually moves from one series by one author to another series by another author. Everybody was happy. Everybody's happy. Um, I'm obviously going to throw it, throw it over to you uh, in a couple of minutes, uh, so please think of any, any questions you've got for Val. There'll be roving mics moving around. But I can't finish, I can't finish without talking to you about the band. Um, in case any of you don't know, Val's going to be front and centre tonight uh, as the fun-loving crime writers bring some rock and roll uh, to the festival. Um, now, as someone lucky enough to, to share the stage with you when we do this, I know how much you love it. And music, music's always been, you know, you wanted to be Joni Mitchell at one point. I know, I know that music's always been important. We haven't even mentioned the music in the Ali Burns bit, books, the playlists are just amazing. But did you ever imagine that you'd wind up playing Glastonbury? No. <laughs> no, not in my wildest dreams. Um, I didn't think I was going to spend my 60s front in a rock band full of, you know, five hairy guys. Yeah. You know, well, Chris isn't very hairy. He's, no, he's not shaved his head now. But I, there's, some, there's times when we, uh, I catch your eye sometimes on stage, and I know that the two of us, as shall we say, the senior members of the band, are looking at each other going, this is amazing! How, you know, I mean, this is amazing, but, but yeah. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal perk, isn't it? It's great, I, I love it, and, um, you know, people seem to enjoy it. I mean, people have come to see us more than once. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, we get we, we 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 rock up, we do things, we change the change the set from time to time. Mm -hmm. We have rehearsals, we have a laugh, 
Well, we have a good time. Come it's, along it's, tonight. It's the best fun. It's the best fun. It is the best fun. Right, I don't know whether the lights are going to go up. Oh, they're already up. Uh, oh, my God, you're beautiful. Um, so I don't know where the microphones are, but do anybody have... Let's have hands up oh, it's in okay. the air. Questions for Val? Listen, if you don't start out, we'll have to start asking you questions. Yeah. There we are. We have a gentleman there. Uh, yeah, thank you, Val. That was brilliant. Um, I'm sure you're right about not taking the opinions of the readership too seriously. <laughs> Though I think Mark's probably going a little bit too far when he says that we're clubbable. Um, you mentioned about the rock and roll, and you described uh, Val when you introduced her as being a, the rock star of crime writing. And I'd like to ask you both... If it came to it, which would you prefer to be, a crime writer or a rock star? <laughs> well, I think probably... She's both! We get to be both! Yeah, I get to be both, but, I mean, the, the, the life of the crime writer is a little less stressful, I think, than the life of a rock star. I mean, you, you, you hear about the, the life of, of a rock star on tour, it's hellish. I mean, you, you're, you're on a bus with a bunch of people going from one city to another day after day. I mean, at least we get a wee break between gigs. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that I'd want to be on the road with you guys for six months. I mean, I love you. I love you all, but you know, I'm not sure in about that. In all seriousness, I think one of the things is that what what Val does, what I do, what all the writers here do is is solitary by nature. Yeah. Obviously, we're just sitting on our own making stuff up. So to collaborate with a bunch of other people that you like is just a joy because it's something we very rarely get to do. I think that's one of the yeah. things that that makes it great. Yeah. Any more questions? Hey, um, this is a question for, for both of you, really, in that, you know, given the amount of like, new authors that are coming up, do you think there'll ever be a time where there's no more crime stories to write? <laughs> <laughs> oh, just bring it down, will you? Just... <laughs> yeah, I think that's... We're, we're all looking at that thinking, well, now we've got chat GPT, we'll all just be retired. Yeah. I, I, I asked chat GPT for a Karen Piri short story, and the story it came up with was extremely pedestrian, but it continually referred to Karen Perry throughout as a lesbian. I'm thinking, no, you're wrong. That's the other one. <laughs> That's the other one. Yeah. It's just like, you know, what's going on here? Are my sort of secret spy readers getting into chat GPT and telling it lies? But no, I, I, I don't think we'll ever run out of, of things to write about because human beings continually uh, astonish us with their ingenuity of ways to kill each other and motives for it. Mm. Mm. I hope not. I mean, there's no, there's no question that AI is, is of concern. I mean, I'm sure you'll hear it mentioned more than once this weekend. It is something that writers and increasingly publishers uh, are concerned about. But, but who knows? As I say, when it's at the stage when it still can't replicate a Val McDermott story in any way, you try and convincing we're all right. And, you know ideas, hopefully, they'll carry on occurring yeah. to us. I mean, you know, throughout history, there have been sort of doomsayers, you know. I mean, you know, I'm sure when the printing press came out, they were all sitting around the fire going, well, that'll be the end of oral storytelling, eh? There'll be no more sitting around the fire on a Saturday night swapping stories. Every time there's an advance in technology, we're told it's the end of the world as we know it. Mm. But we adapt, because we're adaptable people. Um, we, have, we have adaptable brains, and uh, we... we we embrace, actually, difference and change because that provides us with interesting new approaches. And I think there's no reason to imagine that will stop. It's not a competition, you know, it's not like, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like I say, well, if, if you read Mark Billingham, then you're not going to read me. You know, it's, it's, people have huge appetites for, for reading, for books, for exploring ideas. And for as long as that goes on, there'll be, there'll be writers happy to, to fulfill those desires. All your desires. All your desires. Uh, yes, there was another question All down here. All desires somewhere. are there. Yes. Okay, so I think of Val as very fearless, and I'm wondering if there's something you fear that you have yet to write about. <laughs> That's always a great question when the audience go, ooh. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think of myself as that sort of fearful person. Um, there are things that uh, I suppose... Give me, give me pause. I mean, you know, I'm getting older. My body doesn't work quite as well as it used to. So I think, like most of us, I wonder what the future has in store for me in that respect. But in terms of, you know, big scary monsters coming to get me in the night, there's nothing like that that, that I lie awake at night worrying about. Um, 
do you know, I think you, you have to face, face things kind of head on and, and deal with them. Um, I don't like blood, by the way. I'm very squeamish about blood. You know, if I cut my finger, it's a major, it's a major deal. And, 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 but other than that, that's not, that's not fear so much as just a sort of visceral, I don't like this stuff. Yes, where's the next question? Is there one? Yes. Um, it's a question, really, for both of you. With so many great writers coming from the north now, um, do you think there is still a north-south divide within the world of writing crime? Um, I don't know that there ever was a north-south divide in writing crime, except uh, historically, um, when, um, I suppose, in the, the, up to up the mid-late 1980s, uh, crime happened in the home counties, uh, and it happened in, in, in London. Um, and every now and again, they'd have a, an excursion to a Scottish castle or something. But uh, what, what happened um, at that particular point was that writers like Anne Cleves and myself and Martin Edwards and John Harvey and Ian Rankin started writing novels that were set outside London. And readers seized them with, with passion and, and, and enthusiasm. I mean, I do remember going to, to see one publisher when I'd written the Kate Brannigan novels. And uh, she sort of listened to the pitch and said, but will people be interested in Manchester? <laughs> I said, I think so. People in Manchester are pretty much like people everywhere else, just have a different accent. Um, so, yeah, those, those walls were, were sort of broken down a long time ago, and I think that, uh, that that's something very much of the past. I think you can be a successful crime writer now, whatever you come from. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> yes, where, where is the microphone now? Anybody else? Hi. Have you ever, either of you, written a scenario which you then, when you revise it, think, I've gone too far here, I'm, gonna, it's, I'm too uncomfortable with it, and my readers might be uncomfortable with it? Val, have you ever gone too far? <laughs> Many times. The books, the books, the books. <laughs> um, not really. I mean, I think that whenever I'm writing a scene that's, that's, that is difficult uh, to, to process, difficult, that I think that people will, will um, I suppose, God help me, uh, be, be, be triggered by. Um, I, I try to, when I'm writing it, I stay on the side of, 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 the, of the fine line between getting it right and making it credible enough and unsettling enough but not going so far that people are going to run screaming to put their heads under the covers and, and, and go no further. I think there's, there's, a, there's a line between writing about a violent act in such a way that people understand what it is and what it does and how it affects the lives around it and being gratuitously violent. And I, I mean, I'm very much against the gratuitous violence in, in my fiction anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think I've, I've never actually... Uh, thrown something in the bin because I think people won't like it. I, I, I try not to think about it. I try in the widest sense not to think about how people are going to respond to a book or to a storyline because that way madness lies. I, I, I don't second, try to second guess what readers are going to make of it. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I write the book I'm intending to write and uh, I hope it finds its readership. But there is, there is definitely a consideration about the way you write certain kinds of scene. Yeah. I think it's about trusting the reader, actually, and also knowing that the reader's imagination yeah. is capable of conjuring up images far more graphic than anything mm -hmm. any writer can put on the page. I would. There's yeah. one thing I wanted to talk about, about a, a, an incident, again, a fictional incident in 1989, uh, in the book 1989. I know Ali Burns isn't you, but uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a moment in, uh, in 1989 when Ali is, is kind of horribly assaulted by a famous showbiz wrestler, shall we say. Uh, and I know that that is based on something that happened to you. What? I mean, we, we can say his name, can't we? Yeah, he's it, dead. Oh, he is dead. OK, fine. Go on, then. Well, I, I, I was sent out on a story one Saturday morning by the news desk to go and talk to uh, the wrestler Big Daddy, Shirley Crabtree, who's his real name. And he, he lived in a small village, really, in, in, in Yorkshire called Triangle. Uh, and uh, his, his, his house was... Uh, you, know, you had to go through a gate and then down a flight of steps to a sort of backyard to his, to his house. Um, and I, I did this and I, I knocked the door and I, and I announced myself, said my name and where I was from, and he went mental. He, he 
came at me and started started punishing me and, and kicking me. Um, and uh, I didn't even have the chance to say what I wanted to talk to him about. Uh, he just chased me up the steps, punishing me all the way um, in the back. Um, and I, I got up to the top of the stairs, expecting my photographer to be there, taking a photographic record of all this, but he'd legged it. <laughs> uh, he, he said, he said well, I went to get the car so you could get a quick getaway. <laughs> Bastard. Um, and uh, I, was, I, was, I was very shaken. I mean, I, I, I discovered quite a while afterwards that uh, uh, this story had come originally as a, as a tip from a freelance, uh, and he'd, he'd already given it to uh, the Sunday Mirror, uh, the News of the World, uh, Manchester Evening News. I was basically the fourth or fifth person who had knocked on his door with the same story, and he was not happy. Um, the story was that his wife had run off with another woman. <laughs> so he was really not, not happy. Could um, you not name him in the book? I know, I mean, I know it's, I mean, I clearly named, it's him, but you give him a pseudonym. But, it's, but, it's, but I could have named him in the book. It was, we put him on the front page right. of the paper that week. It was, it was like, you know, Big Daddy Beats Up Our Val. It's the headline. <laughs> He's, he was clearly a, 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 a hideous bully. And uh, Ali's, Ali's boss, Wallace Lockhart, in the book, is another kind of bully. It was fairly clear from the way you were talking about the Wraith Rovers incident. Seems to me that in life, in your life and in your fiction you have a very, very deep well of contempt for bullies. Yes, I think that's fair to say. Don't we all? Yeah, but it, it's something that is in, is in all your work, I think. It's a, it's a kind of line yeah. over which when people step, you think, you know... I, I, always, I always think sort of, you know, unfairness is, the, is, the, is probably the greatest crime. I hate inequality and unfairness. And bullies are, you know, the epitome of that in many respects. Um, we probably have time for another question or two. If there's, oh, look at that hand, a very fine hand. Hi, uh, this has been very enjoyable, thank you. Um, at the risk of any mild offence, uh, do writers retire? <laughs> or, 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 or mild offence? <laughs> sorry, sorry, Mark, that That's question great. wasn't... That's a great question. That question wasn't for you, Mark. OK, cheers. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Just keep digging, sir. Just keep yeah. digging. I think it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's an individual uh, choice, really. Some people decide to stop because they've got no more to say. Um, some people decide to stop for other sorts of reasons. I mean, and Colin Dexter said that yeah, he, he, he killed off Morse because he was fed up with people asking him to write another one and he didn't want to write anymore. Um, Anthony Price wrote a brilliant series of, of, of thrillers. Uh, the um, David Audley and, and Colonel Butler books, I, which I, I think are the equal of anything John Le Carre wrote. Um, he stopped because he said, my kids have all gone through university and I didn't need to pay school fees anymore. <laughs> um, some, sometimes it's, it's uh, sometimes people just run out of ideas. They don't, want, they don't have anything more to say. But mostly, we just keep going. As long as the ideas keep coming, why would you stop? Um, I, I do what I love. Uh, and as long as I, as I love it and I still have the ideas and I can sort of still write in sentences, I'll, I'll be doing it. My ambition is to, to go out like Ruth Rendell, you know, who, who died at, what, 80, 85, 84, 85? Uh, have a massive stroke. And when they took her to hospital, they found in her handbag a memory stick with the first draft of her last novel. Uh, that's the way I want to go. Uh, I remember doing an event with, with P.T. James the summer before she died. I think it was her last public event. And we were sitting in the green room having a, having a blether. Uh, and I said, you're writing, aren't you, Phyllis? Because I couldn't imagine her not writing. She said, yes, yes, I am, I am. I'm, it's not a deal, uh, Dalgleish. I said, why not? And she said, well, I don't want to die in the middle of it and have one of you lot finish it. <laughs> it would have been you who it should have, have asked. It wouldn't have been me. Would you, would, I'm not that, polite enough. Is that something you would ever do? Is that something you would ever do? Or finish some, somebody else's work? You know, it, if, if that had happened, if, if the publisher had come to you and said, Phyllis has left half a novel, she, you know, she mentioned that she liked, would you like, would you take it, would take it on? It would depend, it would depend on the writer, it would depend if I felt I could do a proper job. I mean, I did actually work with um, Ruth Rendell's publisher on that, that last manuscript to, to just do some tidying up. That uh, she, would, she would doubtless have done herself and done better on, on the second pass. Um, so, but no, I don't... Uh, it would depend. It would depend very much. It would have to be somebody that I really respected and somebody that I could do justice to, I think. Okay. 
So you squeeze that one would be more you. in. That, that would be you, Mark. You know. Craig, I see Craig's hand. Uh, kia ora, Mark and Val. Thanks for another fascinating conversation and thanks for the decades of amazing reading. Just a quick question. I was curious, you've both been entertaining us for decades. Is what you love about sitting down to tell stories and write novels now the same or different to what you loved when you were first an aspiring novelist? I don't know, I still sit down to, to start a book with uh, a sense of, of excitement and trepidation. There's always the, the, am I still going to be able to do this? And right at the beginning it was like, can I actually do this? <laughs> So I suppose, I mean, there's, there's a bit more sense of, of uh, likelihood that I can do it now because I have certain base level skills that I know will be in place. Um, but I still have that same excitement and I still have that, uh, the same desire to, say, to not repeat myself, to do something different every time. And that's, that's I suppose, the biggest challenge, isn't it? Trying, not, trying to be different, trying to be better than you've been in the past. Well, especially when you're writing a series. Yeah. Uh, because right, what all writers of series know is that readers of series tend to want books that are not exactly the same as the last one, but also quite similar. You know, they do want, they want a book that's different, but not that. There's certain boxes they like to, be, to have ticked. And I don't think it's any uh, coincidence that, that in recent years, you know, you starting the trend, I think, with the, the new series of 79, writers of long-running series have started doing other things. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be that writer that writes one book too many in a series or ten books too many in a series. Yeah, I mean, I've always, I've always done different things, really. When I gave up, when I gave up the day job, I realised um, that I couldn't write two books back-to-back with the same character. Mm. So I was, I was sitting there trying to write the second Kate Brannigan back-to-back, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, I hate this woman. <laughs> <laughs> She's smarter than me. She's funnier than me. She's thinner than me. <laughs> You know, she's better at computer games than me. Why am I spending my days with this bloody woman? Um, and so the, I, 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 I've changed, changed it up right from there. So I'd, I'd very deliberately do different things. So well, they're all the things I mentioned in the introduction yeah. that we haven't had time to talk about, the radio stuff, yeah. children's books. I mean, you, yeah. you do like doing different stuff. I mean, Yeah, that's what keeps me fresh. There's always the things that, that come along. And, you know, sometimes you can sort of see... The, almost hear your editor's eyes rolling back and you say, I'm just in this little side gig. You know, go, what do you mean side gig? Um, but it's, 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 it's the, the other stuff that, 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 yeah, keeps me fascinated. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I am just glad that I've had a career that allows me the indulgence of doing what I want to do. Well, look, thank you everybody for coming out this morning. Obviously there's going to be a book signing. Do come along and see this woman in her Debbie Harry incarnation. <laughs> this evening, you will not be sorry. More importantly, go out and read 1989, which is a blistering read. And it's only the second book in what I firmly believe is going to be looked back on as a landmark series. But until then, please join me in thanking the one and only Val McDermott. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Hiff Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.